If you could turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, let's get going. We've got a lot to get through. It'll be here where we spend our time this morning. I'll be reading sections, summarizing, uh, and preaching from this text. Uh, if you have a physical Bible, I want you just to leave it open at Daniel chapter 5. If you have it on your phone, leave it up there. I know it's going to be behind me on the screen, but that's for cheaters. I want you to have it open so you can look at it with me. And I'm going to start verses 1 through 4. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is weird, right? Daniel chapter 1 through 4, we've been uh, following along with a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And chapter 5 just opens up with, hey, King Belshazzar. Like we all are supposed to know who he is. Chris two weeks ago preached about how Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself up and God humbled him. And what a humbling it was. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had lost his senses. He, he lost his reason. He became like an animal. And he wandered the fields and he ate grass. And after a time of humbling, he gets enough sense to repent. And he prays to God. And God, being rich in mercy, restores Nebuchadnezzar. We ended chapter 4 with this from the mouth of the king. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And now we start this chapter with a considerable gap in time. King Nebuchadnezzar has left the stage. History has moved on. So who is this Belshazzar? This new king in chapter 5. Well, he's the son of Nabonidus. See, we all should know who he is, right? No, Nebuchadnezzar, he died in 562 BC. And through a series of conspiracies and murder, Nabonidus ended up on the throne. And he was apparently a very devout follower of a moon god. And the problem with that is uh, Babylon, they, they, they had a pantheon of gods, but the national god... The God who is his center of worship is in the city of Babylon was Marduk. And Nabonidus, as a king, he was obsessed, he was uh, partial to this moon god. So he moved to another city and he ruled from there. And it appears that he put his son as a co-heir, a second king, and he stayed in Babylon. And his son's name was Belshazzar. The gap that we have between chapter 4 and 5 is at the very least 23 years. Why the sudden jump in the story? Well, first, we must remember that Scripture is not concerned with giving us a history lesson of the Babylonian Empire. God's Word is to teach us faith. Often we come to the Word of God with questions that it doesn't give us straight answers to. Because the Word that you're holding in your hands this morning, it's not primarily concerned in informing you. It's concerned about forming you. 
So, who's gone from this story? Nebuchadnezzar. Time has passed, and like the grass of the field, he is withered. Who's still in this story? Well, let's come back to that in a minute. How does this chapter begin? King Belshazzar decides to throw a little party for a thousand of his friends. You know this story is going to be good. I want to walk a fine line here, though. I don't want to become crude or shocking for the sake of being shocking. But I certainly do not want to sanitize Scripture either. We have a king who has gathered a thousand of his lords and he starts serving wine. Now, it's traditional the Babylonian Empire, that the king would not drink in front of others. But looking at the party in front of him, the good time everyone's having, King Belshazzar, he doesn't want to miss out. He says, give me a cup. And he starts drinking. You know, it's almost as if he's like, hey, guys, I'm a cool king, right? You know, I get it. I'm cool. I fit in. And so with his concubines, his wives, and his lords, he throws a rager. And this seems to imply drunkenness and sexual immorality. And while surveying the scene of debauchery in front of him, while getting drunk on wine and looking at the sensuality and his power and his riches... He has what must have seemed like to him in that moment to be a brilliant idea. You know what would elevate this party, bring it to the next step, next level? Give me those vessels from Jerusalem. Give me those silver and gold vessels. We're going to drink wine. We're going to get more drunk with those instruments, those holy instruments. And he does. He fills them with wine, and he and his party continue to get drunk while praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What is happening here? Belshazzar, with his actions, he's saying, this God, the God that these things were meant to worship, this God's dead. This God's dead. And if he is alive, he can't see this. And even if he did, there's nothing he could do about it. I conquered this God. And he, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's impotent. Look at scripture with me, verses 5 through 9. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed yet again, and his lords were perplexed. Wow. Well, the God that Belshazzar was mocking as dead, 
The God that Belshazzar said, he can't see. And even if he could, he's weak. He can do nothing here. That God just showed up. You know, maybe Belshazzar thought so many years had passed since we conquered his people and we took those things out of that temple. And maybe he doesn't care anymore. Or maybe he just didn't believe the stories of old and he thought they were made up. Either way, the picture of Belshazzar in this passage, it's comical, isn't it? I mean, here he is. He's profaning the things of God with the confidence that you could only have in a drunken stupor. He is mocking the living God. And and the very next moment, the passage describes his color changing twice. I think of those old Bugs Bunny uh, comics where they see something scary and they just turn white. Right? Or they're on a ship and it's rocking and then they turn green because they're going to throw up. King Belshazzar was so startled, so terrorized, so afraid that his physical appearance changed. His limbs give way. His legs knock together. It's making noise. Some commentators even believe, believe that the limbs giving way could be understood as his bowels loosening and him soiling himself. So here's the orders of event. One, profaning the things of God and mocking God. God is dead, he's weak, he's impotent. Step two, God shows up. Step three, absolute terror. It's easy for us to feel smug from far away, isn't it? Right? You look at the story, you're like, man, that guy, that guy's an idiot. But scripture is not for making proud religious people, is it? That's not what the word of God in your hand is for. It's to form us. So let us ask some humbling questions. Has the patience of God with our sin led us to think that he doesn't see anymore? Or maybe, maybe that he just doesn't care? Do we use grace in, in a way that it shouldn't be? And we say things like, Well, he's going to forgive me anyways, so I might as well just do it. Let me ask you this. Do you have a low view of the things of God that he has a high view of? Has church become a place of endurance for you and your family rather than a community of people to love? Is the scripture, the very words of God written for you, something to be buried on your nightstand or under a sheen of dust? How about people made in his image? Are they there just to serve you, be used for your pleasures, your purposes? Are you constantly wrestling with people who want your time and you think, this is mine? God saw the profaneness of Belshazzar. And he sees the profaneness in our bedrooms, our cars, our living rooms our workplaces, and the bars that we go to. He sees the profanity in your second, third, and fourth glance. He sees the profaneness in your drunkenness. He sees the arguments in your home, the words spoken out loud, and the words left unsaid but nurtured in your heart, festering. See, because God isn't dead, he is alive, and God sees, and he is powerful. He sees what you look at. 
in your incognito web browser. Our God is very much alive. And you might say, well, yeah, that's, I, I do sin. Well, yeah, we all do. And you might say, well, I, I do sin, but, but it's different than Belshazzar. See, he profaned the things of God. He took something that God set aside as holy. Something that had been sprinkled with the blood of lamb, set apart for the nation of Israel. Something that was set aside to be an object of worshiping Yahweh, worshiping God. And he profaned that. See, so that's different. That's a good point. Church, let me remind us this morning, you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. You are holy this morning if you're in Christ. He has set you aside. You are covered in the blood of his son Jesus, bought with something more precious than silver and gold. And we are meant to worship him. So I want you to see, if this morning you're not in Christ, you haven't placed your faith in him, you haven't repented from your sins, I want you to see that very clearly for me, you, you are Belshazzar in this story. But if you're my brother or sister in Christ this morning and, and you've gone back to a pattern of sin, it's weaseled its way back in. You are nurturing it. You are complicit in it. Then I want you to see that not only are you King Belshazzar in the story, but you're also the gold vessels that are holy. You are made holy and you are profaning what God has made holy. Christian, don't treat what God has made holy as unholy. Don't profane his holy vessels. We are his holy church. Let me get back to the scene. Well, Belshazzar allegedly, maybe, crapped his pants. His lords and his wives and concubines are in absolute panic. There are screams, and they're not just coming from the wives and concubines. The lords are screaming. There is moving of tables. There are chairs being knocked over. It is a commotion. And the queen, overhearing this, comes in. She finds the wise men all gathered, staring at some writing on the wall. And they're mumbling and pontificating. And they're just trying to think up something to say so they don't get their heads taken off. And the queen reminds Belshazzar of a man named Daniel. He says, hey, Daniel, his God gives him interpretations to these things. His God helps him understand dreams and, and hard things like this. And he served uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the past, so maybe you should get him. Daniel is a follower of the very God that Belshazzar is mocking. So what does that mean? It means that Belshazzar's only hope in this circumstance is the very God he's mocking. Let's look at the scriptures again. I'm going to read a large section from verse 13 through 28. You can follow along with me. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. 
Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretations, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you drunk wine from them. You and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the meaning that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel was asked to interpret the message on the wall. But that's not all he did, did he? No, he he first gives a history lesson. He recounts the events of over 23 years ago. And when he says, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't mean his biological father. He means one of the rulers that was before him. And he says, Belshazzar, you just mocked the God as dead or impotent who humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Look what he did to the most powerful king that was before you. But here, here's the damning part for Belshazzar. Belshazzar knew this already. This history lesson isn't new to him. He knows this story. So look at how Daniel paints Belshazzar's sin. It's not a pretty picture. It isn't, oh well, you slipped up. It isn't, you did something stupid. It's in verse 23. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar mocked the living God as if he was dead. He mocked the all-powerful God as if he was impotent. He profaned what was holy and set aside for worship. And then used the very things of God to worship 
false gods, things created. So what has God written on the wall for Belshazzar and all of us to see? Belshazzar has been weighed in the scales of God, and he is found wanting. Oh, the terror of this passage. Christian, do not let this become old to you. The terror of what was just said there. Who here, who here in their own merits would want to climb on the scales of God? Who here would want their lives, their thoughts, their actions, their inner sins and their outer sins to be weighed by a holy and righteous God? Would any one of us be found anything else less than wanting? To stand before a holy God on our own merit, we would all be found weighed and wanting. The hand that writes judgment for Belshazzar on the wall would write judgment for you and me. Let me read verse 29 through 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Remember, I, I gave the steps earlier. He, he profaned the things of God. He mocked God. He belittled God. He lived as if God is not alive and can do nothing. God shows up. Absolute terror. Belshazzar was right to be terrified. He was afraid. But once he hears the sentence from God, he doesn't repent. He moves on. He goes on with his night. Verse 30 tells us that he died that very night. That means during this entire party, Belshazzar knew that there were enemies outside the walls of his city. He knew that they were camped out there, but it appears he was so confident in the walls of Babylon that they would protect him. Walls made out of things like iron, wood, and stone. The so-called gods that he was worshiping. He had misplaced security. The enemy found another way in, and he paid for his arrogance with death. But what's more is that he paid with, for his arrogance towards God with eternal death. You know the idiom, the writing is on the wall? You guys ever heard that before? It comes from this passage. The writing is on the wall. What does it mean? It means something like this. Your fate is sealed. There's no escape. But that isn't entirely true, is it? Yes, the writing is on the wall for unrepentant sin. If you, like Belshazzar, do not repent from the, your sin, then yes, your fate is sealed. There is no escape. 
The writing of judgment is on the wall. But for those who repent, they throw themselves at the feet of the living God who sees. And they trust in his mercy and grace. They place their faith in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Then for those, the the writing of judgment is no longer on the wall. Because Jesus Christ has been pierced for your sins and the writing is now on his hands. He took your judgment and now his hands scream your salvation. For those in Christ Jesus, the writing moved off the wall and salvation's written on the hands of Jesus, the Christ. So our fate is sealed too. But our fate is eternal life with him. Brothers and sisters, nothing in this life, no power in hell, no power on earth, no power in heaven can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You have been ransomed with something more precious than silver and gold. You've been ransomed by the blood of Christ. We no longer need to conform to the patterns of the world. We can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We get to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and we don't have to make provisions for our flesh anymore. For those who haven't cast themselves on the mercy of God, don't delay. Do not be like Belshazzar. I'm pleading with you. For those who are saved in Christ, don't let this become rote. Don't be bored by the good news of Jesus. If you are weighed today, On your own, you would be found wanting. But praise be to God that Christ is weighed in your place. The God who sees our profanity saw it to the cross and now he sees it no more because he's paid for every last ounce of it. Belshazzar made his choice. What will you choose? This is the end of the Babylonian Empire. This is their last king. But it'd be good for us to remember that Babylon is used throughout Scripture to reference the spirit of the age. All opposition to God's kingdom. And Babylon is again brought up in the book of Revelation. So this story is like a rehearsal for a bigger story. It's like a middle school production of a Broadway show, right? And if the middle school version is the collapse of an empire, what's the big show like? If, if a king who profanes the name of the living God is judged and found wanting, what's the big story going to be like? You know, pop culture often depicts people facing the end of the world by looting, partying, and immorality. Why is that? It's an acknowledgement that that's all that we have left. Let that sink in. King Belshazzar, he threw a party with a thousand of his lords, his wives, and his concubines while his enemy stood outside the gates. He knew that the Medes uh, were outside the wall, but his walls made him feel secure. He thought nothing could harm him. 
how are we and those around us similar? Has the time between Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven and today become like a wall around you? Have you started to think, you know what? Judgment can't be coming for me soon. Do we have a false sense of security? Belshazzar, he numbed himself by drinking wine. He became drunk from the wine, the sexual pleasure, the power and the wealth he had around him. He used entertainment in the form of a party as a distraction. How are you numbing yourself today? Is it forms of entertainment so that you never have to be alone with your thoughts? Is it your cell phone that never leaves your hand like it's got an IV line right there? Is it alcohol? Is it pornography? There is a judgment coming. And there are two parties happening. Two parties that sandwich the judgment. The first one is the one that the world is enjoying. It's filled with debauchery, profanity, false security, and various methods of numbing ourselves. And this party will be broken up by Jesus himself. He will arrive suddenly and he will put an end to this party. And all the nations will be weighed in the scales of God. The profaneness of this world will come to an end. The writing is on the wall. But the redeemed have a different kind of party. One just on the other side of judgment the wedding feast of the Lamb. The celebration of eternal life. This party will have everlasting security, holiness, goodness, and pleasures forevermore. Which party do you want to be at? I ask because you're invited to both. And we can see how Daniel 5 helps call us as Christians to repentance and trusting the Lord. It calls the world to that. And as we believe in Christ, we begin walking a life of continual repentance. We know that we're not there yet, but we press on. We are called to grieve our sin, to turn away from it, and even to put it to death. None of this is passive. We are called to put to death our sin. But how else does this story help us? See, I think that the main point of this text is that the writing is on the wall for unrepentant sin. But I want to pull out some application for us as Christians this morning out of that. Some are, some are secondary in the passage and some are just implied. But I want you to follow with me. Point one, we know God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. So we press on on doing good. Galatians 6, 7 through 10 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Belshazzar was deceived. 
He thought he can mock the living God, so he sowed to his flesh. But we, church, we must sow to the Spirit. The exhortation immediately after, it says, do not grow weary of doing good. Why is that exhortation there? Because when you sow to something, it takes time before a crop comes up, doesn't it? See, the world and the redeemed are both waiting for a crop. We're both waiting to see what comes out of our sowing. And in that in-between, sometimes it could be tempting to look at the world and wonder if we got it wrong. Maybe I want a little bit of what they're doing. Sometimes that looks fun. But the world will reap eternal death. And God's people will reap eternal life. We know the ending of the story. So brothers and sisters, press on. Do not grow weary. Keep sowing to the Spirit. Point two, we take heart that God sees the profane and the writing is on the wall. For evil and injustice, the writing is on the wall. Praise be to God. Praise be to God that for evil and justice, its fate is sealed. So the injustices of pornography, sex abuse, human trafficking, child abuse, extortion, sorry, poverty, war, exploitation, and all other various kinds of evil that grieve our hearts in this world, its fate is sealed. The writing is on the wall. Those things will come crumbling down at the feet of the risen Lord. And it also means our three greatest enemies, sin, death, and Satan, their fate is sealed. The writing is on the wall. It's coming to an end. And so, brothers and sisters, take heart. The profaneness of this world is coming to an end. Three, we rejoice because we have a better party. Christians, rejoice. All right? Like, be excited about this. You know you have a better party. The world has a party now, and it is filled with fleeting happiness. The church will have a other party on the other side of judgment, and it's full of everlasting joy. Think of that. So be loud, church. Rejoice loudly. You have been saved. Don't worship like you have nothing to rejoice about. Worship because you have every reason to be rejoicing. And church, extend the invitation to the better party. How do we do that? Well, we we rejoice that we have a better party, and then we don't become insular in that and say, yeah, look at what we got. No, we go, you can come too. Right? Extend the invitation to the better party. Because you used to be in the world's party too, not long ago. But how amazing is this, that while we were all still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He who knew no sin became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. He called us out of that dark party and he brought us into his eternal light. So brothers and sisters, because the joy that's set before you in Christ Jesus, share the good news. Lastly, my fourth point, 
we need to respond to the profaneness of this world with a greater reverence for God. As our world increasingly pursues the profane and mocks the things of God, what is our response to be? It would be far too easy for us to feel a sense of self-righteousness. The pull to feel superior over other people, especially those who profane and mock and blaspheme God, it's strong. But church, we must resist it. Daniel didn't come and make much of himself. He hasn't in any of the previous chapters. He shows up and he turns the attention to God. He says, I, I, I didn't get this interpretation on my own, but God gave it to me. He makes much of the living God. Instead, he spoke about him. He didn't sugarcoat his words, though. But his words did not drip of self-righteousness either. He met the profaneness of the king of Babylon with a greater reverence for the king of heaven. So the church should not hide from this world. But the church should hide in Christ. What do I mean by that? We don't shrink back. We don't shrink back, brothers and sisters. It's, it's okay. It's actually right. It's good to say the things around us are sinful. We should do that. We should be able to say, because God's word says these things, not on our own. When we see sexual ethics that just leave what God has written in his scripture, church, we should say that's sin. We should say abortion is sin. And we shouldn't join the world in every single thing that they're doing. Meaning you don't need to watch every show that the world watches, church. You don't need to be caught up on every cultural moment. It's okay to miss something. If, if our Netflix accounts and our bank accounts look exactly like the rest of America, there's something wrong. But can I introduce the tension here? Yes, do those things. But church, it's not about us. We don't, we don't turn away from those things and say, look at me. I'm holy. I would never do that church. It's about Jesus. The hope of the world is not you. It's not me. It's Jesus Christ. And so we must hide in him. Church, whether you like it or not, you're in this world. You're in this party, this dark party. Don't be like King Belshazzar, taking a look at everything around you and say, huh, that looks fun. Give me a cup. Don't be like King Belshazzar and say, let me take what is holy for God and profane it. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the privilege that you get to be holy in the midst of this dark party. You will look different. But church, brothers and sisters, we must interpret the writing on the wall for the world. It is judgment for unrepentant sin. But don't end there. Also interpret the writing of salvation on the hands of Jesus. Tell them the good news. Bring them into the party. And who knows? Maybe that person you're sharing it with 
They turn away from their sin. They see Jesus as better. They rejoice in the Lamb who is alive. And all of heaven rejoices. And they have a party up there as we await the better party that we will all be in. So church, look at Christ. Enjoy Him deeply. Rejoice loudly and be reverent in this world. Be holy, set apart, that our witness might be one that gathers the outcasts and the sinners into the greater party. Let's do that with our lives this week. Let's do that with our response and repentance. And let's do that in a little bit when we worship God in song.